As everyone who watched yesterday's events in Washington now understands, if they did not understand before, the rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for friends, another for foes, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. That was Judge Merrick Garland pledging to uphold the core principles of the Department of Justice when he is confirmed, as almost everybody in Washington expects, as the country's next attorney general. Those principles might sound like stock platitudes that virtually any attorney general would echo, but they have been sorely tested during the Trump era as William Barr repeatedly involved himself in criminal prosecutions and charging decisions that almost always seemed to benefit the Confederates and cronies of the President of the United States. And Garland would seem the perfect antidote to the conduct of Barr, a former federal prosecutor, a senior official in Bill Clinton's Justice Department, and a federal court of appeals judge, almost universally respected for his thoughtful demeanor and judicial temperament. We'll talk to one of his oldest friends and former colleagues, former Deputy Attorney General Jamie Gorelick, and then we'll get a reality check on the prospects that the Garland Justice Department might investigate and even prosecute Donald Trump on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So I got to say, one more top Biden appointee who you and I have known for decades. Uh, you know, we've talked in the past about how uh, our long uh, history of covering Ron Klain, the incoming chief of staff, Tony Blinken, the incoming secretary of state, Avril Haines, uh, you and I have both uh, known, and she's been a guest on Skullduggery. And now Garland, who I should say we probably know best. I mean, he, I, you and I both covered the Justice Department when he was uh, the uh, deputy to then Deputy Attorney General Jamie Gorelick and uh, and got to know him then. I think you, Clyde, probably uh, spent more time with him than anybody. Yeah. Once again, I think I said this on one of our previous podcasts. When you get to be as old as we are, uh, <laughs> you're, you're, you're the people that you've known early in your career sometimes often rise to very high positions in the government. Unfortunately, they're like so 
high up in the government that we're not going to be able to get to them anymore, <laughs> probably. But you don't, you don't uh, think but, he'll, that that Garland will be a regular guest on Skullduggery? <laughs> no, no. Actually, he didn't do a lot of media before that. Uh, but but because we know them so well and have covered them for so long, uh, we will be able to reflect our brilliant insights on the podcast on a regular on a regular <laughs> basis. But yes. really early in my career, when I was still working for a, uh, a newspaper in Washington called Legal Times that covered uh, law and I covered the criminal justice system in, in D.C. And one of my one of our colleagues, uh, Stuart Taylor, who is who has been a previous guest on Skullduggery, it came to me with a tip. He said, um, Merrick Garland, uh, I think they were Harvard Law School classmates or something, who works at you know a big Washington law firm as a partner, making a lot of money, quit his job to be a line prosecutor in the U.S. Attorney's Office. So probably cutting his salary by about two-thirds. Pretty unusual thing to do. And uh, for our readership, you know, that was uh, noteworthy. So I called him up and wrote a, wrote a small item about it. And, you know, we stayed in touch. And then... Then, um, not too long after that, Bill Clinton became president, and and Garland got a job as the chief of staff to the head of the criminal division, a woman you probably remember, Joanne Harris. Uh, <laughs> but it was it was pretty clear that uh, this was someone who was going to rise quickly in the Department of Justice through some combination of his you know his intelligence, his good judgment, and his you know real kind of he just kind of. Um, gave off this sense of real competence and, and ability to sort of manage people um, and organizations well. And soon enough, he was Jamie Gorelick's paydag, which was the um, kind of the most important staff position in the Justice Department. And, you know, I w- you know it, it's not overstating things that he was very much involved in running the Justice Department uh, during that period for Jamie Gorelick and Janet Reno. And uh, after a while, he took on these very big, high-profile cases um, for the Reno Justice Department. The most well-known one, of course, was the Oklahoma City bombing case. But the thing that just to connect Merrick Garland back to the issues that you were talking about and questions about the independence of the Justice Department, his first job at Justice uh, was as a uh, very young special assistant to Ben Civiletti, who was the uh, attorney general under Jimmy Carter. I guess he was the second attorney general under Jimmy Carter um, after uh, Griffin Bell. And what he did as a special assistant, one of his main tasks was basically enshrining some of these really important new post-Watergate principles uh, about the Justice Department being independent and being free of partisanship, putting them in memos, in guidelines, you know, the, the the FBI guidelines that you and I have talked about in the past, I think were part of that whole process. So he's kind of lived and breathed all of these issues that are going to be so important in terms of coming in and restoring the department's independence and reforming it. And I got to say, I mean, he is in many ways the polar opposite of Bill Barr. I mean, Bill Barr, you know, we had both known for years and covered and did have a reputation as as an institutionalist, which kind of has been frittered away during his tenure as uh, as Trump's AG. But we all also always knew him to be a 
political guy with, you know, political instincts. Openly, and, brashly and, and political. Openly. And Merrick Garland is just the complete opposite. He is not a partisan. He doesn't give off partisan vibes. He doesn't take cracks at, uh, at political foes. Uh, you know, he is... Rarely does interviews, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, but but he, he's, he's got a, I think, a well-deserved reputation for independence and being willing and a willingness to listen to all sides, which is why when he got thwarted by the Senate Republicans after being nominated by Barack Obama to the Supreme Court, it was so stunning to so many people because he is a Democrat, of course, um, and he was nominated by a Democratic president as to the Justice Department, to the Supreme Court, by Obama, you know, and now by Biden, but not one who, you know, has an axe, you know, to grind or wants to score political points or an yeah. agenda. I mean, yeah, and, I don't and, have and, any sense. And you could see that you could see that throughout his legal career, because one of the things you, you hear about the, I think it was 23 years that he was on the D.C. Circuit as an appeals court judge, was that he was always genuinely interested in hearing the arguments of the litigants uh, before him. You know, some of these judges can, sometimes they have, the, you know, get the knock for being, um, you know, preening and pontificating and wanting to do all the talking and not not enough listening. And that was not uh, Merrick Garland's reputation, who had a genuine, was involved in a genuine search for the truth and for justice. And, uh, and tonally just very different, a kind of humility that you don't off, always see in, in attorneys general. Well, which is why I think that a lot of the Twitterverse and uh, liberal Democrats who are demanding scalps from of Donald Trump and Trump uh, cronies, I think could be disappointed. We're going to get into this uh, with our second conversation with Michael Zeldin, a, another former federal prosecutor who's looked closely at the potential crimes that the Garland Justice Department could bring against uh, the president over the, you know, horrific events of um, this week at the Capitol, uh, incitement to sedition, incitement to violence. And um, those are, you know, I know this is going to disappoint a lot of our listeners, but those are pretty dicey cases to bring. These are statutes that have often been used against the left. And I think, and we'll, we'll have a fuller discussion of this, that Merrick Garland is going to be reluctant to push the envelope in order to bring criminal prosecutions against uh, Trump and uh, yeah, perhaps other I, White I, House I, officials. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that 100%. I, I, don't think it's, I, I don't think he's necessarily going to have the same motivation as, say, a Biden who might not want to push those things because Biden is thinking about, you know, getting his agenda through through Congress um, and, and wanting to lower the temperature and be more bipartisan. I'm not sure that's going to be what Merrick Garland will be thinking about. I think he'll be thinking about, um, are these cases that you can actually bring, you know, can you actually prove the various elements of, of these alleged crimes? And he won't want to set a bad precedent for the future where we are continuing to just politicize 
or criminalize conduct. So, but that, you know, but that said, this is the Justice Department. This is the attorney general. And, it, you know, these days in this environment, you know, politics, you know, overshadows everything they do. And, you know, we'll get into this as well. Um, he's going to have to make tough decisions about the Hunter Biden investigation, the investigation into the president's son and uh, what to do about the John Durham investigation into uh, how the Russia investigation was handled by the FBI. So, you know, these are uh, politically explosive issues, and uh, it's going to be really interesting to see the way Garland handles them. a political hot seat, no question about that. I just want to say one last thing about Garland, which is that I mentioned before the Oklahoma City case, which was really the kind of formative experience uh, when he was at the Justice Department, Maine Justice Department, in the first time around. That was in the spring of 1995, and uh, I was assigned uh, to write a profile of Garland because he was he- uh, he was at the helm of that in- of that very complex, very emotional uh, investigation. And so I uh, flew down to Oklahoma City and spent a day with him, and we were walking around the. Uh, the the Murrah Federal Building, which which was the uh, which was blown up by Timothy McVeigh. I mean, it was still smoldering uh, when we were there. And the thing that I remember, um, well, two things really. One, and they're related. One was how kind of committed he was to running a thorough and ultimately effective investigation for the sake of the victims of that crime, but. Related to that was um, he is one of the most meticulous lawyers uh, that I've ever known, and the way he talked about y- you know uh, every single document, every search warrant, every subpoena had to be absolutely flawless because any mistakes at the end of the day could harm justice, could harm their ability to to, to successfully bring those prosecutions, and he was thinking about you know the children who were killed, the children who were orphaned, the parents who had lost children, while staying detached enough to do his job properly. And for me, uh, you know, at that point, still a relatively young reporter, it made a huge impression on me. Well, there is, uh, we've got a a excellent guest to talk about Merrick Garland, uh, one of the most widely respected, best known lawyers in Washington who has known Merrick Garland for decades and worked with him, Jamie Gorelick. So let's get to it. We are now joined by Jamie Gorelick, former Deputy Attorney General of the United States. And I think it's fair to say that there may be nobody in Washington other than Merrick Garland's wife who knows him better than Jamie. Uh, They were colleagues. uh, She was his boss. They were in college together. So, Jamie, welcome to Skullduggery. I'm happy to happy to be here. I would add his two daughters probably know him better than I okay. do, but I know him longer. <laughs> longer, right. All right. So big picture, what kind of Justice Department will Merrick Garland run? Merrick Garland will run a Justice Department that lives up to the long time values of that department. He will make decisions based on the facts and the law. He will lead with uh, his own values and those of 
the president-elect and vice president-elect, I'm confident that we are going to have a fabulous Justice Department over these next years. Jamie, you know that in part because you've known him since college, but you also know that because you saw him work up close as your top deputy at the Justice Department. He was the so-called PADAG, the Principal Associate Deputy Attorney General, and helped you and Janet Reno run the Department of Justice in the uh, first part of the Clinton administration. So tell us about how Merrick Garland did his job during that period, what some of the highlights were, and what that tells us about how he would approach the job of attorney general. Well, as you know, Dan, he has uh, sat at nearly every important seat around the table at the Justice Department. He started out his career as an assistant to Ben Civiletti. He was a line prosecutor. He was an important player in the criminal division. He was my pay dag. He ran critical investigations uh, during that time. And of course, then you add to that 23 years as one of the most esteemed judges in the country. That's a pretty good package that President-elect Biden has gotten here. I think he He'll bring a couple of really important things to the table. One, just to mention and give a nod to his important judicial tenure, he'll bring a credibility with the courts. I mean, if he takes a position on behalf of the Department of Justice, it will be recognized by his former colleagues, not just in the uh, district courts and the Court of Appeals, but in the Supreme Court. He has held very important roles within the judiciary. And I think that'll be very important, particularly given given the positions the department has taken in the last four years and and the way the courts have, uh, have responded. Uh, we've lost a lot of credibility. So I wanted to start there. And of course, he did serve on the D.C. Circuit with now Chief Justice John Roberts. And uh, I think he's got the respect of, of the Chief Justice. You know, there's a lot of things about I me. Mean, Mike and I covered Merrick Garland going back to when he, I, I did. I think he, I think I first got to know him when he left his relatively new partnership at Arnold and Porter, where he was making, you know, in those days, a huge sum of money, you know, $300,000 a year or something. That's what these um, corporate lawyers do, by the way. But Go ahead. <laughs> they do what? Make money? Make, make huge sums of money. <laughs> yeah. But he left. I mean, I, I got to, I, I met him for the first time because Stuart Taylor, who, someone who we all know, was working with me at Legal Times and said something unusual happened. Someone left a partnership at a big Washington law firm to become a line prosecutor in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Washington. And that was such a notable and unusual thing that it was worth a story in legal times when I, when I worked there. But I actually kind of, uh, I, I want to go back a little further before the two of you worked together. This was his first job in the Justice Department as a special assistant to Ben Civiletti. Yes. And he, he mentioned this in his remarks when uh, President-elect Biden introduced him. Ben Civiletti, I think, was the third attorney general after Watergate. You had uh, yes. Ed Levy, you had uh, Judge Bell, and then Ben Civiletti. And one of the things that Garland mentioned was that Ben Civiletti was kind of putting, you know, kind of down on paper these kind of new norms in the in the, the post-Watergate era, ensuring 
that the Justice Department would be independent and that, you know, keeping partisan politics out of the work of the Justice Department. And that's what Merrick Garland was doing. So it tells you something about, and it's really part of his uh, uh, DNA. So when you worked with him in the Justice Department, I imagine you were able to see him close up and his kind of dedication to those basic principles which have not been present in the last four years. So I wanted you to sort of talk about that a little bit. Well, he, he brings to the table, and as does Lisa Monaco, the spirit of a line prosecutor. He knows what it is like to know a case up close and to have views on how it should be handled. Now, it is not the job of a senior appointee like the attorney general to just defer entirely to those line attorneys, but it is the job of an attorney general and a deputy attorney general to listen to those people and to hear them and to make decisions based on the facts and the law without any political pressure, without any preference for anyone. And he knows that. He's lived it. He lived it at the bottom and he helped write it at the top. And I saw it every single day that we worked together at Justice. You know, just picking up on that, as you know, one group that's not entirely excited about Merrick Garland's selection are progressives who have criticized him over the years, saying he's been too deferential to law enforcement. He's sided uh, when there have been issues between law enforcement and um, civil liberties groups and others. Give us your take on that and how he would respond, how you think he would respond to that set of expected criticism. So let me be really clear about two things, both under the heading of, I don't think this is a fair criticism, and I think those people will be proven to, uh, and happily proven from their point of view, to have been mistaken in their concerns about him. You don't, as a judge, get to make policy. So for the last 23 years, he has not been in a position to tell anybody what his views are on civil rights or the enforcement of civil rights. In terms of his decisions, he follows the case law. I mean, those the decisions he made were strict adherence to precedent. So I don't share those concerns. And I think when he's able to speak in his own voice, those concerns will be addressed. I think you'll see that in his confirmation hearings, for sure. Jamie, let me ask you something about what is going to be on his plate, assuming he's confirmed. Uh, It'll be be... a very big plate. (laughs) It'll be a very big plate. But one of the things that's likely to be on on his plate, there is a conversation in Washington and across the country about whether after these four very difficult years full of scandal and controversy and corruption, whether there needs to be a reckoning and a, a real effort to sort of hold accountable President Trump and people uh, around him who may have broken laws. The sense is that that Joe Biden doesn't necessarily want to go there. He wants to move for, look forward, not backward. And it'll be up, but ultimately it'll be up to his Justice Department to make decisions about criminal prosecutions. But the one that will really be looming is this thing that we've just been through, which is this attack on the Capitol. And the FBI is looking at at crimes. And uh, we even understand that they're looking at 
potentially President Trump for possibly inciting violence. House um, Democrats are preparing criminal referrals to deliver on January 21st to the Biden Justice Department. So this is not likely to be, you know, it'll take a time, a while for these allegations to be investigated. And it may well be that uh, Merrick Garland is going to have to make decisions when he becomes attorney general. How How will he think about issues like this? How will he approach questions about whether the president, the former, then former president should be investigated and prosecuted? President Biden said he wanted an independent Department of Justice, an independent attorney general. He's going to get one. You can't actually imagine anybody more independent than somebody who's been for the last 23 years on the bench and silent, basically, on public policy issues and absent from political campaigns or blogs or podcasts or anything. So I think that he will approach this, as Janet Reno used to say, based on the facts and the law. And I don't have any sense that there will be any unwillingness in the Department of Justice and the prosecutors whose job this is to fully investigate this siege on the Capitol. I mean, I, I, I can't imagine. Now, I don't think that the code name for uh, this investigation is going to be the reckoning. I, I, you know, I don't. I think it's going to be what happened here and who is criminally responsible. And I think there'll be plenty to say grace over from what I saw. Yeah. I, so let's let's take what you saw, both the events on, on Wednesday and also dialing it back to last Saturday, that phone call with the Georgia Secretary of State, where he's asking uh, him to find him the 11,000 votes uh, that can get him the Georgia electoral votes. I mean, just based on what you have seen and on this, you've been a top Justice Department official, you've been a veteran criminal defense lawyer. Are there crimes there that the Justice Department should investigate and how would you expect Merrick Garland to um, approach this? Well, Mike, there, there already are investigations of the siege. We know that, right? right? And I don't, I don't know how the Georgia phone call or other phone calls like that will be investigated. But I think if there is cause to believe that a crime has been committed, it'll be investigated and the decisions that will be made uh, whether to indict on the facts and the law. I don't, I haven't studied these enough myself, but, you know, as a citizen, I think the behavior is appalling and the Justice Department is fully capable in its whole, not driven by the top of investigating where there is a possible crime. But just based on on what's out there, the president gives this speech. He riles the crowd up. He tells them to march down to Pennsylvania Avenue to help stop the steal and buck up these weak Republicans. He doesn't explicitly call for violence. And then the crowd gets there and they do engage in violence. Is that incitement to violence? Is there a, is that criminal conduct? A lot of people have called it incitement. I am not going to opine on it. I can talk to you about my friend Merrick Garland all day long. All right. I want to ask you a question I, I asked you the other day, but I think it's going to be front and center at the confirmation hearings. I can expect every Republican to be asking two questions 
of nominee Garland when he goes through his confirmation hearings. Number one, will you appoint a special counsel to investigate Hunter Biden's alleged tax violations? They are under investigation. Hunter Biden himself has confirm that? And will he allow John Durham, the special counsel appointed by Bill Barr to investigate the uh, conduct of the FBI and the Russia investigation to complete his work? How will you expect he will answer those two questions? And how would you uh, advise him to answer them? Yeah, I don't know what his answers to those will be. And I don't know that I'm going to be the one advising him on how to uh, on how to answer them. I can tell you that we and our Republican predecessors in the when we were in the Clinton administration Justice Department let the special the the special prosecutor act the special counsel act lapse why because well that's after you appointed a lot of independent counsels no, so, more no, than any other a, here's Justice the thing Department. it is it is capable of really distorting what a justice department does I believe, and I'll just tell you my belief, uh, my belief is that there is very little that a Department of Justice run properly can not do itself. You can find people who are impartial and dedicated to the task. And so my inclination was then, is now, not to have independent counsels unless the Attorney General himself or herself is implicated or involved in the underlying conduct. I don't think that an investigation of anybody anywhere in an administration uh, itself is cause for an independent counsel. And if you look at the regs, the regs make that clear that you need to have a conflict of interest. So, wait a second. So, by your standard, though, there would have been no grounds to appoint Robert Mueller because made, uh, Sessions had recused himself. So he was he was not involved in the investigation. He had been involved in the campaign. So once he took himself out of it, why should there have been a special counsel to investigate the Russia matter? I, I think that I don't I can't speak for Rod Rosenstein, but I think that he felt implicated by the uh, process by which Comey was fired which would clearly have been a subject matter of the of what counsel would do. I mean, he was the tool for the firing of Jim Comey. So you had the attorney general recused and you had the deputy attorney general as an actor in the very thing that was being investigated. Jamie, after four years of the Trump Justice Department where there were serious and I think credible allegations that that its independence was compromised. You know, a president who himself kept asking, where is my Roy Cohn, expected the attorney general to be his personal lawyer. The recently departed attorney general, Bill Barr, intervening in criminal cases of uh, cronies of the president uh, to push for lighter sentences and, you know, many other examples. What will Merrick Garland have to do And is there anything symbolic that he should do when he first becomes attorney general to convey to the American people that independence has been restored to the Justice Department? What would you advise him to do once he gets there? Dan, I think that there'll be two things to do. One is the way in which he speaks. 
and I think he is very well steeped in the tradition of the department, or I should say the traditions of the department, and is very well able to speak to the importance of independence. And the second is in the way decisions are made. I mean, you're gonna, you'll, you'll see it. You'll see the transparent and understandable way in which decisions on tough cases are made and described. Yeah. I, I want to ask you about, I think, what was probably the formative experience um, in his tenure at the Justice Department when he was working for you, which was the Oklahoma City bombing case. Yes. Uh, you made the decision to put him in charge of that investigation from the Justice Department perspective. And he traveled down to Oklahoma City. I spent some time with him down there. He was very hands-on. And you know, my recollection from that period was that uh, he was very meticulous about you know, every aspect of the investigation, wanting to make sure that the I's, and the T- the I's were dotted and the T's were crossed on every subpoena, every search warrant, didn't want to make any mistakes. But tell me what, why you put him in charge of that investigation and what your uh, recollections are of uh, how he handled it. Well, I'll say two things. Number one, I did send him, but only after he, he said, as we were tearfully watching, you know, babies being hauled out dead or wounded from the rubble of the, of the federal building that was blown up, in, which included a daycare center. We had little kids ourselves of the same age uh, at that time. He said, he turned to me and he said, you, I have to go. You have to let me go. Well, he was my right arm, right? <laughs> he had lots of stuff to do, but he had to go. We needed him there. So that's number one. Number two, you may recall, both of you may recall, that the Oklahoma City bombing occurred not long after the O.J. Simpson trial, yeah, yeah. which made a public <laughs> mockery of justice. And for that reason, because we wanted to show what a model of justice really looks like, and because we wanted to have an absolutely bulletproof case, we sent one of the most meticulous people on earth, who was also quite credible with the FBI, which of course could have bridled at someone else saying, no, you don't have enough probable cause yet, or no, this, is, this search warrant is gonna be executed in this way, or yes, so-and-so is going to, such and such a jurisdiction is going to take uh, precedence here. So that meticulousness that you saw was part of his instruction, which is do it absolutely right. And there was no appellate issue in those prosecutions, none. There, that was a, that was as fine a prosecution and as complicated a case as you can imagine. The other thing I would say, you had investigations, part of the FBI investigation in, I think there were six uh, federal districts, that is in the domains of six different US attorneys and several different jurisdictions within the FBI. You had the ATF, you had other federal agencies who had lost people in that explosion. You had the state of Oklahoma, you had the city and the city attorney in Oklahoma City, you, and you had first responders who were treating the site as a, a disaster site, and you had 
the FBI wanting to treat it as a, a crime site, the diplomatic requirements of this job were very high. He had to work seamlessly and build a cohesive team out of different groups that could have spun in any number of directions. Now, I, you know, I was back home and I was there to work the phones and talk to the principals, but on the ground, he had to do that. And he did it spectacularly. Any instances come to mind I, I, just of, of sort of tough decisions he had to make one way or the other and um, how he came down? You know, I don't have specific instances that come to mind, Mike, but there were a, a number of instances in which the Bureau reflexively wanted to do something that he thought they should hold back on. And that caution turned out to be really right. Yeah, I actually wanted to ask you about the relationship with the FBI, because you know as well as anyone that that can be a fraught and difficult relationship. And there was a fair amount of tension during the period that you were deputy attorney general and and Merrick Garland was, was working for you. We all covered Ruby Ridge and Waco and some of these other controversies. What's your sense of what the relationship between the FBI and the Justice Department is now and what Merrick Garland will have to kind of look out for in keeping a, a good relationship with the Bureau? Well, like the career prosecutors, I think uh, there are many in the Bureau who also have been hanging on them by their fingernails. I mean, we've never, that I can recall, had a president who attacked the Bureau. That was considered suicidal. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Politically. So. You sent some pretty tough memos to Louis Free, I, I yes, recall. I mean, no, we had our disagreements, <laughs> but I didn't say they were a bunch of crooks. <laughs> That's true. Fair point. I mean, you know, there is a healthy tension. That's because you were a part of the same deep state. So, of course, you weren't going to go after them publicly. You know, the, the, <laughs> there is a, there's a natural tension between investigators and prosecutors. I mean, all you have to do is watch a crime show on television. You can see that. It's like one of the age-old themes. But it doesn't have to be personally hostile. And and Merrick has a great relationship with, or had a great relationship with the people who were running the Bureau and even the ones on the ground at the time. And I have every expectation that that will continue. And remember, Lisa Monaco was chief of staff to Bob Mueller, knows that building really well, knows the culture really well. Uh, I think that um, they are going to be welcomed across the street. When I asked you before about the two questions that are going to come up from Republicans on the confirmation hearing, you answered the, one of them, which was a special counsel for Hunter Biden. But I also asked you about the Durham investigation, which really seems to be focused on an issue you know well, and that is the handling of a FISA warrant um, against one of the suspects in the in the Russia investigation. Now, I'm sure you've read the Inspector General report that oh, documented quite a bit of, uh, of uh, significant uh, errors and omissions in the FBI's FISA warrants on, on Carter Page. So first, I just wanted to get your reaction to that, because this was an issue. I mean, FISA 
and the handling of FISA warrants and what got presented to the FISA court was something that was very much front and center during your tenure at the Justice Department. So, you know, first, just having read what the FBI, all the things the FBI got wrong there, including the fact that it had information that undercut what was being presented to the court and it did not disclose that. Doesn't that argue that um, the Durham investigation should be continued in some form aggressively to get to the bottom of all the issues that the inspector general raised? Well, I thought the inspector general did a pretty good and thorough job. So I was actually surprised that there was a second investigation chartered. But let me let me speak about FISA. What I said then and I believe today is that when you give the government a unilateral power that is not checked by the adversarial system, you have the potential for either just stupid mistakes or worse. And there have to be really, really rigorous systems in place to prevent that. And so- uh, Jamie, can I just just cut you off for one second? Because I want to ask you specifically about that. Because in the past, there have been proposals that I think have gone nowhere to have some version of an adversarial system where someone is appointed not to represent the defense in an individual case, but kind of for a long period of time to to represent the sort of other side to make it more adversarial. Would you favor that? So actually, the FISA court now has a panel of lawyers who are qualified by virtue of their security clearance and their background and understanding of of foreign intelligence uh, surveillance to be the appointed advocates on the other side where there appears to be some issues. So I, I think that that's a pretty good solution. Before suggesting that there'd be something more, I'd want to know how that is working. Mm-hmm. One of my former partners who's actually going to become the deputy White House counsel and legal advisor to the National Security Council uh, was one of those people on the panel. And my impression is that that worked. The harder question is what is the nature of the review that goes into those applications? They're very dense and very thick and somebody needs to really look at them hard. And Janet Reno was so worried about this that she paid special attention to that. She elevated to her office as direct reports, the Office of Intelligence Policy Review, which were the, pe- the people who had to review those. She wanted to look in the eye the people whose job it was to give her this big stack of paper so that she could say, what is in here that I need to worry about? She also read every damn page, which I am very certain has been not been the tradition thereafter, but maybe, maybe I'm wrong about that. But it, you know, it took her a ton of time, and she did it. So to answer your question about FISAs, I would a I would look to see whether this adversarial process that is has been established in the FISA court works, and I would really beef up or return to its former state, frankly the review processes, both in the Bureau and at Maine Justice, of those applications. With regard to uh, the Durham investigation, let me just say, I firmly believe that all U.S. attorneys should tender their their resignations, every single one of them, uh, at the end of the tenure of the president that appointed them. 
um, the Justice Department should run in a cohesive way. It should have policies set by the Attorney General, uh, whom they serve, and that's what I think. And I don't accept Durham from that. I'm very confident that there can be found someone within that team, within the department, to lead that inquiry. There's no reason for a special counsel there. And in fact, uh, Bill Barr didn't even attempt to say that it was qualified under the regs establishing special counsels. He just said it was kind of a good thing to do, but he didn't tether it to the, the very regulations which set out why you do it. Well, he couldn't because Durham is a sitting U.S. attorney and therefore exempt from being a special counsel, which says the special counsel should be somebody from outside the government. Yes. And you also need to have a conflict. Tell me where that was. And if he had a if Barr had a conflict, why didn't he have it two years ago or he a year ago? He anticipated that the Biden Justice Department would have a conflict. OK. Merrick Garland does not have a conflict. OK. End of case. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'll look, I don't, Mike, I don't, I haven't talked to Merrick about this. I don't know what it, he's, but I, you asked me my view. I am a, the Justice Department can do it person, except in the narrow circumstances, which were very well thought out. And I, I would not suggest blowing a hole that you could drive a truck through in those narrow circumstances. They were, make sense. You don't um, need an independent counsel or a special counsel unless the people who would otherwise be running the investigation are conflicted. Um, so that would apply, in your view, then, to the Hunter Biden matter as well, that there's no conflict for Merrick Garland to oversee it. So therefore, the, uh, even though it's the Biden Justice Department and it's an investigation of the president's son, there's no reason to no, have I don't know, a special again, counsel. I, I don't know what the tradition has been or the thinking has been, you know, certainly for investigations of members of the cabinet, which is one of the things that was let lapse, if you will, when the act uh, was allowed to lapse, you could make a similar argument that, you know, this is a the president's appointee and therefore and, a, and a, a colleague in the cabinet of the attorney general, and therefore he or she should not be making the decision. I. I don't think that that's that that's right. I haven't looked at the issue of a family member and and I don't have a considered view on that. But uh, but I have a bias toward believing that among 120,000 people in the Justice Department, you could find somebody who is independent. All right. Well, we're such Justice Department nerds. We could go on talking to Jamie forever and ever, but we have to let her. Well, and I got, I got two questions. I got, well, all right. All right I got well, two you questions. Guys, you guys, you, can you guys <laughs> settle this between the, you, you do this every single podcast? Yes. Yes, that's the we, charm of it, Jamie. Didn't you know that? We are we bicker listen, like a married, like a little married couple. between Clyman and me. Who, who scores the most <laughs> all right, points? You ask a question, and then all I've right, got I one got last. I got one professional and, and, and one personal about Merrick. So the, uh, the professional one first. Yeah, the Republicans are going to talk about the Durham investigation and Hunter Biden, but a big part of the agenda is clearly going to be civil rights and addressing the concerns that minority groups and progressive groups have raised, you know, growing out of the Black Lives Matter movement. What steps, specific steps, does Judge Garland need to take to address 
the concerns that people have about the way the Justice Department has investigating investigated police abuse and civil rights cases in general? Well, a couple of things uh, that fall within either the bailiwick of, of Vanita Gupta, the nominee to be Associate Attorney General, or Kristen Clark, who is the nominee to be uh, Assistant AG Civil Rights. First, I think, uh, and Vanita has said this, that there should be a freer use of, of the pattern of practice investigations that allow the Justice Department to take its, uh, uh, an independent look at how a department is uh, enforcing the law and whether it is doing so consistent with the constitutional rights of the people in that jurisdiction. And I think you'll see more of those. The president-elect has said he wants to bring back the cops office. I happen to believe that a lot of the, many of the problems that we're having can be dealt with remedially with better training, different recruitment, a uh, different set of, of rules. Uh, you know, I, I volunteered in the aftermath of the numerous killings of black people, but mostly prompted by the killing of George Floyd the Conference of Mayors undertook to create a template for cities in the rules that they put in place for cops, in the ways in which the union contracts are structured to better allow discipline to take place where there is misconduct, uh, in all manner of things. It's worth, it's worth your reading, I think. This is mostly a local issue and it's gotta be solved locally. I think a lot of departments are not well-equipped to solve these problems themselves. And so the combination of a more robust program to help cops, to help police forces, and a stronger enforcement mechanism, I think will work very well. I think you know, both Lisa Monaco and Merrick Garland talked about the importance of civil rights enforcement. And I believe that with the team of the four of them, you will see that. Mike, what was your, you had a personal question? Oh, well, yeah. I yeah. mean, uh, okay, you've known him uh, since yeah. college, uh, Harvard College, if I'm not mistaken. Um, give us some memories of the young Merrick Garland and uh, how you um, sensed that he would one day become the Attorney General of the United States. That was States. exactly, almost word for word, going to be my question. <laughs> okay. See, you guys have been working together so yeah. long, <laughs> so long that you ask each other's questions. You can be married. It would be yeah. so sweet. And then we argue about the yeah. answers, right? Well, you can be married. It would yeah. be so sweet. Right. Um, so I met Merrick when we were both appointed to a university committee to look at undergraduate life. And uh, it won't surprise you that I decided that my mission on this committee would be was to get equal equal rights for the women in the university in things like the eligibility for fellowships, the eligibility for prizes if you got a certain grade. I mean, there were really insulting things like if Michael, you and I sat next to each other in a class and we both got A's, you got a prize and I didn't. Like 
that pissed me <laughs> off. Okay. And what would also never have happened in my case. Because, yeah, right. Right. Okay. Well, maybe it was a bad hypothetical. Maybe I should have yeah. used Dan. I don't know. Yeah. But, but, but I, and it extended to the fact that the women undergraduates were not given football tickets and the men were, I mean, these were so, and the answer of course was, Oh, don't worry, Jamie, you could just get a date. So, uh, so when so you asked Merrick to be your date, so no, you that's get not what happened. Actually, <laughs> okay. I, that, that is not where this story is going. Okay. So I, there were there was no better friend on that committee than this freshman from Chicago. He was wonderful. He spoke first of all. He was a you know debate champ, so he was more articulate than, than I was and was better at uh, mustering arguments. He, he supported what I was trying to do he, in the most uh, articulate and persuasive way. We still lost most of the time, but it was a good battle to have fought. And that's how I got to know him. He was literally, I was two years older. We, uh, he was my wingman on, a, on one of my many battles in life. And after that, uh, we followed the same path uh, through through law school, and uh, our families are very close friends. And uh, you know, I just love him like a brother. Has he gotten over the way he was treated some years ago when he was nominated to the Supreme Court? He's a man of tremendous equanimity. You know, this is not something you forget. Like you don't wake up in the morning and forget that you were nominated and not confirmed. But he loved being a judge. He was chief judge of the D.C. Circuit at the time. He poured himself into that. And he's a, he goes about his business. And frankly, coming into the Justice Department to write a listing ship is a pretty good place to have ended up. Well, on that note, I want to, that's a good place for us to end up. I want to thank you for uh, joining us. And we are definitely going to want to have you back. Well, I'll decide at the time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's spoken like the careful lawyer yeah, that you the are. The careful lawyer. No commitments <laughs> from Jamie Gorella. But it's been a great pleasure, guys. <laughs> okay. okay. All right. Thanks a thanks, lot. Thanks, Jamie. We now have with us Michael Zeldin, former Justice Department prosecutor, former independent counsel, uh, veteran legal analyst, and host of the new podcast, That Said. Michael, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thank you so much for having me. There is a lot that is going to be on the plate of the new Attorney General, Merrick Garland, who everybody assumes is going to get confirmed. And front and center is going to be the demands for accountability for what happened during the Trump era writ large and also very specifically what happened over the last week with the horrible demonstrations and riots on Wednesday. And the question is, can people be held criminally accountable for what happened? Clearly, the rioters can. But the question is, can and should President Trump himself be investigated? You've been looking at the, uh, at the law on this, and you're familiar as we all are with the facts. Give us your take. So when we say hold a person who is a politician accountable, 
there are two ways to hold people accountable, politically and criminally. And so when you ask the question, what will Merrick Garland's role be, his role will be to determine whether or not there's criminal culpability. And principally, the question of criminal culpability for Trump or anyone who is going to be accused of inciting a riot is, did they engage in conduct that is criminal and not First Amendment protected free speech? So it's really inciting violence. The question is, what did you do? What did you say? And how was that impacting the in conduct engaged in by those who you were talking to? And personally, I hate the sedition law. It was passed in 1918, essentially to prosecute people like Eugene Debs, who were speaking out against the draft in, in the First World War. It's been a terrible law for the left, so I don't like it. I read Trump's speech on the um, March to Save Our Save America. There's nothing in there that I read that is language that's of a fighting nature that says go down there and 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 um, destroy the Capitol. In fact, he says specifically that we are going down there uh, lawfully and peacefully and patriotically to make our voices heard. He says, yes, we will fight, we will fight. But the words fight in his speech refer to sort of like his whole administration. We've been fighting ever since we got here and we're going to continue to fight. So I don't see anything in here that legally would hold him culpable under the sedition laws. And and I think therefore, the consequences that he has to suffer are political. But but sedition and but that would also apply to incitement, right? Because sedition yeah. and incitement are not are those are two separate statutes. Right. You've got rebellion, insurrection, inciting a riot, sedition, domestic terrorism. But they all, Dan, sort of come down to at the very bottom, what did you say and what did you encourage? And when you say to somebody in a civil rights context, we are going to fight for our rights. If you say in the anti-war movement that we are going down to the White House or to the Capitol and we're going to demand this or we're going to fight for that, I don't see those as legally culpable words. I see them as First Amendment protected words. And, and it makes me a little bit insane to hear you know, so the liberals in Congress wanting to apply this law to Trump because they don't like him without any recognition of what it has been used for in the past and how dangerous it is if we broaden its use for the future. So taking this out of the realm of the criminal law, because I think you you make a pretty persuasive case that uh, that he could not be liable for the violence that occurred on Wednesday. And yet, you know, over the last four years, really five years, because it began during his campaign, there is a pattern of rhetoric that I think you can make a pretty persuasive argument has led to violence. Not that you could establish uh, that, you know, criminal laws were violated and Trump could be prosecuted, but that created an atmosphere that contributed to violence uh, that has occurred. So then in terms of accountability, you said that, well, that it would then need to be political. 
what kind of political accountability do you think would be warranted? Well, so I've, I've tweeted on my at Michael Zeldin Twitter thing, uh, a new, a new <laughs> event for me, that I think the first step, and maybe the last step, but certainly the first step should be a vote of censure. That the conduct that we've seen, not only in respect of the um, March to Save America, but the incendiary language that, that Trump has used throughout the fight against the results of the um, 2020 election warrant some censure. And, and, I, would, and I, would, I would favor that, just as I would favor censure for Hawley and Cruz for, this, for, the, for the same exact, exact reasons. The 25th Amendment, you know, I don't, I don't see it. You know, he's, he's, a he's a destabilizing force in America. He's been a destabilizing force ever since he got here. Whether in the next 13 days he's going to launch nuclear weapons or do something that makes him unfit for office. Remember, the 25th Amendment was there in the aftermath of the Kennedy assassination when Kennedy was you know, in, in a coma, essentially, from having been uh, shot or the case of Reagan, where he's going under general anesthesia, it's when they're really truly incapacitated. It's not because you disagree with them. It's not that you have the right to have a president who you disagree with politically uh, removed from office. The, the precedent of that is just incredibly dangerous. And, you know, there are presidents that we've, we saw in the past with Thomas Jefferson and John Adams. Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, Jefferson, the vice president to John Adams, who eventually run against him. There was a 25th Amendment. Jefferson invokes the 25th Amendment to get rid of Adams so he doesn't have to face him in the 1800 election. The dangers here are, are, are so enormous. And when you don't have the, the benefit of a historical understanding of how these things were intended to be used, and if they become weaponized, to use that word, against one's political enemies, I just think we're setting ourselves up for a catastrophe going forward. All right, Michael, you're going to piss off a big chunk of our listeners. Yeah, I know that. Blood, I, I, right? I, I and, do that. And, you know, the thing about being, uh, yeah, yeah, the thing yeah, about being, as yeah. I consider myself a leftist, yeah. the thing about being that is yeah. that you piss off liberals. All right. All right, but let's look at the totality here and and try to put it in a, in some context. You had these tens of thousands of people c convening coming to Washington. Uh, anybody looking at at the social media over the last few weeks would have seen all sorts of references to violence, to bringing guns, to fighting back and uh, standing up for the Second Amendment, uh, as well as uh, exposing the election fraud. And then the president gets up there and he talk, talks about the need to stop the steal. We're going to march down to Pennsylvania. We're going to march down Pennsylvania Avenue to the Capitol to buck up these weak Republicans and make sure they stop the steal. And then we have this, you know, appalling violence that ensued. And by the way, just to update you, if you 
since we uh, started taping this, the Justice Department has made public additional arrests, including finding um, uh, one of the protesters who had 11 Molotov cocktails uh, in his pickup truck from Alabama plates, another who brought uh, a gun with, uh, with live ammunition into the Capitol. I mean, yes, the president may not have explicitly said, go down to the Capitol and commit violence, but... Given the circumstances, couldn't it be argued that he damn well should have known what would likely result when he uses the kind of rhetoric that he did? Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that, which is why the Hakeem Jeffreses of the of the world may properly find that what I'm saying is just completely naive and that when people speak in that language, they should understand the logical consequences that of their speech is that there will be violence, even though he said specifically, we're going down there to march peacefully and patriotically. But I still don't like that as a criminal charge. I but just what you're think- saying, yeah, I mean, what you're saying is the law is the law. And, you know, ultimately, a prosecutor has to make a judgment. Can you, you know, bring this case before a jury and prevail? And presumably, you'd have to establish intent. Um, That's right. And, and so if Trump says, do it peacefully, it's going to be hard to do that. But I, I want to let's step away from the president for a moment. You know, you you are clearly the people who breached the Capitol and then were marauding through its halls and destroying property and doing other bad things uh, can and will be prosecuted. What do those prosecutions look like? And, you know, you keep hearing politicians say they're going to be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. And this does seem like a moment where the federal government has to take a stand. So what does the fullest uh, extent of the law mean? What should they be prosecuted for? They can't be prosecuted for treason, I don't think, because there isn't a war taking place. But can you go, you know, beyond destruction of property? And I mean, what are the, the criminal statutes here that were violated? So there are a lot of criminal statutes that apply to, to this conduct, and they group into various categories. There are property offenses, such as the destruction of government property, vandalism, theft of government property. It's reported that uh, somebody looked into Nancy Pelosi's computer without authorization. That would be a computer hack. That guy was arrested, the Justice Department announced. That's right. That possession of, of weapons. Then... There are things that relate to disorder, the remaining in a federal building without lawful authority, civil disorder. What about sedition? The uh, inciting a riot, all of those things. And then there are the, the political offenses, the sedition, the rebellion or insurrection, and domestic terrorism. And as to many of those people who came across interstate lines armed and ready to fight. I think that domestic terrorism and rebellion, insurrection, and maybe even sedition and conspiracy sedition may apply because those people, I think, engaged with premeditation to come here to commit acts of violence. And they didn't need Trump to get them all ginned up. I think they came here with this pre-existing intention, which I think is another factor which undermines the likelihood of success against an, uh, an indictment of Trump for 
incitement because these people didn't need to be incited. They came here. I mean, remember, these are not these are not local people in large measure. These are people who came from all across the country with with Molotov cocktails and semi-automatic weapons and and pipe bombs for a specific purpose. And right, those but, people but should Michael, be they've, for been, that. they've been listening to the president uh, and his personal lawyer and all his top political people telling them that the election was stolen, that their votes didn't count. You know, they were defrauded out of, um, you know, the, the legitimate results of elections in some states. So they hear that. And, you know, you hear baseless allegations of fraud that undermined the democratic process, of course people were going to be angry. And of course, if they believed it, they were going to demand some sort of forceful response, right? Well, they're going to demand that the Ted Cruz's and the Hawley's and, and, and the, the, the Jim Jordans of the world stand up there in the well and contest what they think was this rampant voter fraud. I think that's what would be reasonable for a politician to expect from people who believe that there was rampant voter fraud. I do not think, again, you're asking me as a former prosecutor, would I bring a case where the charge is that I incited people to commit acts of violence, that there's essentially a, a causal connection between my words and their acts. And I'm saying that's a very, very difficult charge to make. It's a much easier case to bring against the individuals themselves who, as I said, cross state lines with a pre-existing intent to conduct the, uh, the, the mayhem that they did. And, and those, those people should be prosecuted for that. And maybe the organizers, maybe some of the organizers can be looked at to determine whether or not they encouraged people to bring weapons with them to uh, storm the Capitol. I haven't seen evidence of that, but if in the preparation for this march, there are people who are sending 30 buses. I think I read that Clarence Thomas's uh, wife was actively engaged in encouraging people to come and the Republican Attorneys General Association and their, their, they have an arm the RDLA or something, you know, Republican it, Attorney General's Association was a was a co-sponsor of this rally. Right. And then and they and they have and then they have the rule of law defense fund um, subsidiary of that. I mean, we have to look and see what did all of those people say? What were they encouraging? And then you can determine whether there's causation, because that's what I think, to Dan's point, you need to prove intent. Did you, did, you, did you have necessary criminal intent to be prosecuted under this statute? And I start this podcast, and maybe this is how we end the podcast, I don't know. But I hate this sedition law. I, I think it's, it's been used for bad purpose almost always. Some, you know, some- Well, did, did, you, did you see the uh, trial of the Chicago 7, the Aaron Sorkin uh, yeah, movie I did. that was uh, uh, on Netflix or Apple TV or wherever? I mean, it was really interesting because in that case- it was John Mitchell, Richard Nixon's attorney general, who ordered the prosecutors in Chicago to charge the Chicago protesters, Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin, and the others, with sedition, even though the prosecutors didn't feel that it added up to that. Well, that's and, and, that's, and that's my point. And you, when you look at the history of this statute and the failures of the prosecution's under this statute, you have to pause as a prosecutor, one, for 
uh, determining whether or not you can win a case like this. And then two, if you really are a progressive, why would you advocate the enhanced use of this? They're gonna use it against Snowden. They're gonna use it against Assange. They're gonna use it against the woman whose name I can never remember who was arrested. She has a very unusual- uh, Reality winter. Reality winter. That's yeah. who they wanna use this against. They wanna use this against environmentalists who are strapping themselves to nuclear power plant fences. That's who they wanna use this against. And, and I just don't see how you willy-nilly, because you don't like Trump, say, yeah, let's use it against this guy without realizing what, you're, what process you're putting in place. Michael, let's step back for a moment. And let me ask you a, just a, a policy question that relates to you know, cr- the criminal law, which is we have a, a growing problem of political violence in this country, brawling in the streets, you know, proud boys and white supremacists and, you know, some groups on the left as well. It, you know, if you were uh, back at the Justice Department and kind of thinking through how to deal with this uh, problem, um, what are the, the levers, what are the tools that officials have to try to get ahead of you know, a growing problem. It's beginning to feel like, you know, Italy in the 1980s, you know, with the fascists and the communists in the streets. Is there a role for the federal government to, to try to deal with this problem before it gets completely out of hand? Yeah, I think so. I think there are two ways that one approaches it. One is through the use of the criminal laws to actively pursue people who are committing acts of violence. There is no you know, sort of reason not to do that. If people, if Proud Boys or whomever show up in the streets with with weapons they're not authorized to carry or engage in destruction of property, I think that those cases can easily be brought and should be brought. Keep in mind, of course, that when you say that, people are going to say, yes, okay, fine. Well, let's take a look at what happened in Portland and in, in Minnesota and is the same tests going to be applied there when you start defacing federal courthouses in Minneapolis or in Portland, are you going to be prosecuting those people? And and I think if you're saying you're going to prosecute Proud Boys, you can't not prosecute the anti-fascist um, groups. And so you have to be careful what you're looking for. But I think one of the primary responsibilities that Merrick Garland is going to have is to be out there speaking about normalcy. If the campaign of Biden has legs, you know, the, the theories of his campaign of, of, of let's just return to normalcy. It's sort of Warren Harding. I mean, Warren Harding ran on a return to normalcy. Campaign. I was just going to say that a hundred years ago, exactly. That was Warren Harding's campaign slogan, return to normalcy. And That's here right. we are a century later. We'd That's love right. to talk about Warren Harding on this podcast. So. <laughs> and, 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 and what did he do? What did Harding do in order to return to normalcy? <laughs> he pardoned Eugene Debs and all the other socialists who were jailed by Woodrow Wilson for speaking out against the war. And so there are things that are capable of being done by politicians to sort of, you know, sort of return to normalcy, to, 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 lower, the, to lower the temperature. We got to do a show on Warren Harding reconsidered, uh, <laughs> a right. revisionist look at the Harding administration. Right. Where, is, um, where, where is Warren when we need him? Yeah. Hey, um, so we, you talked about the, the, 
sedition and the and and the riot on Wednesday. What about the phone call on uh, Saturday to Brian Rapsenberger, the uh, uh, Georgia Secretary of State, in which he asked Trump, which he in which Trump asked him to find eleven thousand votes uh, uh, so he could win the state. Now, then he later says, of course, all I want is the truth. That's another example of Trump sort of speaking out of two sides of his mouth yeah. in the same in the in the very same conversation. Is there a potential criminal case there? It's again, these are these are hard cases to make that that phone call like the Ukrainian phone call was hardly perfect. It was, yeah. you know, an endeavor to reach a outcome that the president wanted, which he had no right to ask. He had no right to ask uh, Zelensky to interfere in uh, the election by investigating Biden. He had no legal right to ask um, the Secretary of State of Georgia to go find him 11,000 additional votes so that he could win that election. It's clearly in, inappropriate. Whether it's actually in violation of a criminal statute, again, like with sedition and, and, and the fighting words that it requires, it's a very difficult case, which is why I think the remedy is much more political, which we haven't talked about on the, the discussion so far is, is a second impeachment appropriate? Now, I would expect that the, that's the last thing the Biden administration wants to enter into its presidency with a uh, impeachment against, uh, a second impeachment against Donald Trump that's lingering into their, into their presidency. Well, but, linger, once it's January 20, there's no, there's nothing more to, to do on impeachment oh, no, once no. he's out of office. No, no, no. Uh, Many you can impeach somebody after they leave office? Many constitutional scholars say yes, that you can impeach post-tenure in office because that's the only way that Congress has to deny them the right to run for office again. Remember, the impeachment clause has two parts, impeachment, conviction, removal, and then a separate clause in the Constitution which says, and then bar them from being able to run for office again. So many constitutional people say that that entitlement of Congress to bar a person from running from office again carries on beyond their term in office. And by the way, Michael, uh, we uh, it was it's just been reported, uh, I think while we were on this podcast, that uh, Congressman, I guess outgoing Congressman C Cedric Richmond, who's going to be a White House official in the Biden um, administration, that he told Democrats today that Biden was, quote, on board with the idea of impeaching and removing Trump from office just 12 days before his term is due. That was reported by uh, <laughs> yeah. Ryan Graham of The Intercept. We, so, will, we will see. I'm, yeah. I'm a little skeptical of that. But that is fascinating that the president, that Trump can be impeached even after January 20, uh, which gives us a lot of um, leaving on an optimistic note for skullduggery because we'll have no end uh, to talking about an impeached president who's no longer president. Um, but <laughs> it's just, just just to that point, though, it, it, there's not uniformity of uh, opinion about whether that can take place. But there is a solid number of serious constitutional scholars who say you can. All the better. We'll have both sides on skullduggery. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, Michael, thanks for joining us. And we will definitely be back to you and be listening to That Said, your podcast. Thank you guys so much.